0: Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world.
1: Hi, I'm I'm Travis Foz. I teach game development at a a university, Indiana University, -University pre-University Indianapolis. Um, I have sort of research interests in online education, game jams, game makers, and then a lot of the things I teach are... um, 3D visual-spatial stuff like augmented reality, mixed reality. Multiplayer games is one of my favorite ones to teach.
0: Fun. So what first sparked your interest in these different types of media-based realities?
1: Um, that's a good question. I think my, my first interest in them probably would be actually, and I suspect this will be questions coming out, the holodeck from, from Star Trek The Next Generation. I grew up watching that. That was like, I'd come home from school and it would be on, so I'd, I'd have that on while doing other things, while doing homework. Um, it was definitely my sci-fi of choice for a while. Um, there's a couple other shows like that too. There was a, um, God, what was, it? was that one called? Reboot, I think it was called. It was a, a really early 3D animation that was sort of like in the virtual world. Um, And I spent a lot of time online. I I just kind of became fascinated by the the fact that we could make these these virtual worlds that people like to live in so much. Once I got to college, that became more of an accessible area for me. So I did play around. There's these old VR systems. They're called cave systems. They're essentially four screens that you project on. Um, And then you wear those those glasses you'd wear to to watch um, a 3D movie. Uh, they're very expensive. They're like sixty thousand dollars to install. Um, that was the cheap one, but that really sort of kicked off my interest in like what can we do in these spaces and, and what um, what sort of outcomes can you can you get from them. Um, when I was in college, a lot of the times my my teachers would tell me like you've got to incorporate emerging technology in your research, and so uh, that definitely was a factor of some of the research I was doing too. So I was always making sure I was dealing with the the new thing not the thing that we we knew quite a bit about already
0: yeah that that makes sense so you spoke at starbase cindy a couple of years ago and mm-hmm. you talked about the differences between various alter uh, media-based alternative realities so what give me a primer what are the types of modern mixed realities that are available
1: so people definitely people argue with this all the time i have my own definitions of them too well, you're
0: the one I'm interviewing. Um,
1: <laughs> that's fair. So I I think of mixed reality um, as as sort of the the type of mixed reality that we're really used to. We're really used to like phones sending us pop up notifications, um, or audiobooks like putting on an audiobook while we're driving. Um, that's oftentimes what I think of as mixed reality. Another good example of this is one that we don't see so much anymore. Um, or, or there was a lot of public backlash against this one, the, the Google Glass of, um, it really wasn't augmenting our reality so much. It was just, they had a little floating piece of plastic in front of your eye that could display small notifications that you wouldn't have to look at your phone for. Um, those things sort of like mix, like give us some mixed reality there. Um, and then there's these, these two ends on, on each side of that that I, I think of called um, augmented reality and, and virtual reality, um, that's sort of a continuum of how much real and how much virtual do you have in front of you? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so virtual reality would be one that many people see nowadays. Um, I don't know if it's become cool to take these pictures finally, but you'll see the, the pictures of people with those head-mounted displays, those Oculus Quest or those HCC Vibes. They just look like big, Plastic bricks in front of people's faces, <laughs> um, and that—that's virtual reality. It takes away all of reality and replaces it with a um, with a three like a three dimensional whatever you want in front of you. Um, and then if we move towards the other end of the spectrum, we'd have this thing called augmented reality, which is, for the most part, we're seeing what we would see normally. We're seeing, you know, light from the sun reflected off of walls and grass and whatever. Um, But then we also see 3D content overlaid on top of that that isn't actually there. That's augmented reality. Um, The offerings that we have there uh, sort of focus on those two ends of the spectrum with this interesting sort of middle edge case of we all have these highly capable phones in our pockets that do a lot of that for us nowadays. Um, So on the virtual reality side of things, we have these head-mounted displays. that have gotten pretty good, actually sort of frighteningly good at um, at displaying imagery to you. Uh, there's sort of two levels you'll have there. You'll have one that, one that um, it, it's tied to your computer. It can get more processing power. You can get like nicer looking graphics. That's what people like, um, and more immersive gameplay in that end, but you're typically hooked in by a wire to that computer, which can be constraining for some people. Uh, and those are the, the major players you see in there nowadays tend to just be the HTC and the Vive offerings. Uh, and those are going to cost you mm, usually around $600 to $700 for, for one of those things. They tend to be kind of heavy too, which is troubling. Um, there's another offering in that field as well, which is coming from Facebook, Meta, the the HTC and ITC, the, the Meta Quest which are these, these lighter um, headsets that you put onto your, onto your, your head, um, but they're not hooked into anything. So all the processing happens inside of the headset itself. You can kind of imagine these things. In fact, the early offerings in this field were you took a cell phone and you stuck it in there. <laughs> right,
0: right, yeah. Um,
1: yeah, they're called the, the gears. Um, so you can kind of imagine this is just, it's a cell phone um, that's specialized to do this virtual reality stuff the the neat thing about those is that they're not tied to any specific um computer or place anymore you'll see pictures of these and you'll see these these little dots at the bottom of them Mm -hmm. Uh, because the way they work is they they take um camera feeds They actually have infrared cameras so they shoot out a bunch of um, infrared lasers and map the ground and then use that to position uh where you are inside the space uh really like Incredibly sophisticated technology. I'm amazed by how well it works. It can it can tell you if things enter into your field of view while you're working. Um, so that's at the that's at the far um, VR end of the spectrum of these headsets that we can put on, on in front of us that replace everything we see in um, track where we're looking. If we're standing up, we're kneeling down. We're moving. Um, really, like really common um, offerings there. The they tend to be the they should be about 500 to 600 dollars for the headset um right now you can get those oculus quests for 200 or 300 because they're they're trying to sort of corner the market um which i can it'll be an interesting play by them uh so that's sort of like if we think of the holodeck that's definitely closer to like what the holodeck technology might be um, mm-hmm. on the opposite end of the spectrum there are um things that do augmented reality that overlay 3d graphics in front of your normal vision um, and they are also head-mounted displays. They typically look like like a shield, uh, like a, a visor in front of your face, sort of um, ski goggles esque. Uh, some of them, in fact, are marketed as ski goggles specifically. Um, and they project imagery onto that that shield in front of your face, so that you can see it. And they they project different ones in front of each eye, so you're getting different um, a 3D uh, vision of it. The resolution, I haven't played with the, the latest offering from Microsoft there. Oh, what is it called? Wow. Oh, the HoloLens, the HoloLens 2. I haven't played with that one, but the resolution is really small. You have to like be looking directly at the thing to be able to see it. Um, there's no peripheral vision in these. In fact, if you look away even just a bit, you no longer see that 3D. Um, but the same capabilities as I talked about with the Quest, it can map the 3D space, it actually, remembers the space, so if you take it off, and then put it back on later, it remembers exactly where you're at and positions all the things in your space again, where you're supposed to be. Um, and that will overlay 3D content. It looks very much like a hologram, like Star wars s sort of blue and shimmering in front of you. Um, doesn't actually shimmer, but can can get that feeling. Um, there's a does few offerings. You, What's
0: that? Does it ask for help and say that you are a? help? <laughs>
1: Um, I'd be surprised if no one has has programmed like an assistant (laughs) like that. They might have like a Cortana for that now, actually. Mm. (laughs) Um, I could definitely see that. Yeah. um, So Microsoft Hollands is the the big player in that area. There's a few others. Um, Vuzix, I believe, is another one that makes a a shield like that. Um, And you'll see Offerings like this too in in sort of the military fields so you'll see like the 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 warrior of the future has this like H M this head mounted display in front of them um, that is overlaying graphics for them to see so it's, um, there's some other offerings that are not publicly available but you can get if you're you're military oriented or you're in some some sort of corporate settings that that use those as well um, in between those two there is augmented reality from our cell phones, which is becoming perhaps the most accessible one that we have. Uh, It just doesn't work sort of the way we'd want it to, and that you have to hold up your cell phone to look at it. But many of our cell phones have, um, you know, modern cell phones. You look at the back of them there's like a, it looks like a bug. It's actually kind of frightening because there's an array of cameras. Um, There's one camera that's just an IR. There's one camera that's a telephoto. There's one camera that's your normal camera. Um, You can have up to like five cameras on the back of those phones um and those things allow you to 3d map your environment just like the oculus quest would Um, and so both your your apple and your android offerings have uh, this capability of pointing a phone at something mapping it and then placing 3d content within your space or um, replacing that space entirely with a a virtual space Um, so that's a place where, where mixed reality also exists and is in, like quickly accessible for people nowadays we can do that um just navigating to websites actually and allowing your phone to, to access those capabilities um major use case like whenever people talk about it and think about this the the words that come to mind is pokemon go <laughs> right, um, yeah. right pokemon go Uh, If you enable AR mode in Pokemon Go, it says point your device at the floor and you click on the floor and then a Pokemon appears that they're the right size uh, that Pokemon should be, and you can walk around it. Um, That's exactly like many modern phones have that technology of knowing where you are in space um, and being able to position things on the ground to allow you to to walk around it or um, against ceilings as well, really common. And then once you know that position in space, you can technically recreate an entire 3D scene around that space. It's just, might not be as interesting as having a head mounted display on.
0: And one of the things about these technologies is you don't have to have the heads-up display. You're kind of in that 3D space without uh, losing access to real space.
1: Yes, okay. correct. And then and that that's can be cool. That can be nice sometimes. <laughs>
0: right, right. You wouldn't wanna wear an Oculus out in the world. You'd get run over by a car.
1: Correct. Yeah. (laughs) The Oculus has um, so like when you put it on, you'll see that that grayscale image um of your your space, which is really cool. It's called the pass-through camera. Um, and they're beginning to enable capabilities for developers to use that pass-through camera um and make like not the world's best augmented reality, but like a grayscale augmented reality. We're we're working on some of those things um with some surgeons here at IUPUI, where we're gonna do some. Um, pass through sort of surgery assistance using the Oculus Quest. It's a, a learning device.
0: Oh, very cool. So, how would that? So you're going to be looking in a real body, and the Oculus is going to help the, the learning surgeon map exactly what they're looking at.
1: It's um it's specifically for teaching intubation, which is an incredibly oh, sure. difficult thing to do. Uh, we're actually doing two parts of it. We're, we're constructing a, a mannequin, not a, a real one for this, this one, that's gonna be augmented with um, sensors. And then the sensor data will be piped over to this Oculus Quest. So if you, if you, you intubate incorrectly, you'll get live visual feedback on where you're doing it wrong. Um, cause right now it's like, it's super awkward cause you have to like lean over this head in a weird, like you're like above the head, leaning over it, trying to get this thing in. Your instructor can't really see um because you're taking up a lot of space so you get that tube in. it's a really awkward direction you have to to get the tube in um so we're we're gonna take all that and like so they can still see what they're doing but they can also see this live visualization of uh where they're applying pressure that they should not be applying pressure while doing it
0: yeah and you can imagine that as it becomes more technologically advanced being able to feed back the kind of reaction a human would have to you know poking mm-hmm. it in the wrong place that's very cool
1: yeah <laughs> Um, once we get some money, we can make it really cool, but I'm, I'm doing it all for free right now. So it's, it's not the highest priority, but it's fair.
0: But, but functionally, it's a very cool possibility.
1: Yeah. exciting stuff.
0: Yeah. There's a ton of exciting stuff that's actually happening in real life. That was science fiction a decade ago. Um, but science fiction has also been playing with these concepts, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the things that science fiction depicts this as being able to do that isn't real? Like where do they get it wrong?
1: Um, I know it was uh, like one thing that we sometimes see with this is uh, the concept of like um, it's able to affect us. That's a big one we'll see sometimes of a punch is thrown and it actually hits us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's not something that's, entirely possible right now right it's just like pixels on a screen there are people who are making these these body suits that you can put on that will kind of like give you a tap or a thud if you get hit with inside the video game but it's it's definitely um it's definitely sort of like a setup that that doesn't just happen um that's one of the big ones creating things that are room scale we see this all the time and it looks so cool <laughs> it looks so cool like whether it's the holodeck whether it's um holograms and star wars like suddenly it just something takes up the whole room um great great for movies great for storytelling is not something we're especially good at yet um especially if it's shared uh so we do have these things called i mentioned the cave system near the the beginning of this the cave system has continued um, and it is room scale VR, uh, but it's really expensive to do. Now they do it with a, uh, a 360 degree um, panel of LCD screens, and so you're surrounded by LCD screens um, around you in a circle, and you can look around in the circle. And if you're wearing glasses, uh, you that, can feel like you're immersed in it as well.
0: Is that the AR wall that they're using? Is that was that what you're talking about? That. Uh... That they're actually using on both Discovery and Strange New World sets to create mm-hmm. sets so the actors can see what the viewers will eventually see, or some.
1: It's estimation. um, it's a fairly similar type of technology. Yeah, um, those things are super cool, by the way. <laughs> they look um, super
0: cool, and I've only seen flat pictures of them.
1: Yeah, they're and they're like they're pretty. They're like super bright, and then one thing that you don't always see with those is that. Uh, they're hooked up. They're actually using video game engine technology. Most of them use uh, an engine called Unreal Engine. Um, they're hooked up to read the lighting data from that video game engine. So if you go in and change the daytime, um, the lights at the top of the, at the top of this virtual production environment change their intensity and reflect. It's just, it's an amazing setup. <laughs> um, but yes, it's the the same sort of technology of this, this 360 degree panel of, um of things. Some universities have them. Not as many have them as, as the old CAVE systems. Uh, a difficult thing to do with this is to do shared um, shared VR. This is actually really difficult. Shared um, co-present VR or AR. Um, it's a problem that takes a while to figure out because either um, we have two people with HMDs who now need to know where each of them are in relation to each other, which becomes difficult in that shared space. Um, Or we need to have two different devices agree on exactly what they're seeing and that's hard enough with humans already sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they need to know like they need to both agree that like this particular point in space is the exact same across those two devices which becomes hard. So we see in like the the holodeck we, we make sort of this shared experience because everything appear like it's this light that's sort of like, or matter. I don't know exactly how the hall is supposed to work. It's definitely closer to space magic than to some of the things. <laughs> They're a little
0: vague on that that's intentionally, um, I think.
1: <laughs> but like, it's, it's like coalesced light or matter that gets recycled. Um, and then other ones, it's like just light that appears in the middle of the, the, the world somehow, like you're shooting and bouncing light off of other light particles. Don't know how exactly that works. Um, we can't do that. And so we need to, we need to have some way of either, um, making two devices to agree on, okay, I'm in the same place and looking in the same directions or from different angles. Um, or I know where other things are, um, it's actually a really big problem. And there's a couple of companies out there that that make it their, their thing to say, we can do shared co co located, co located augmented reality, um, across the world, right? There's one, it's actually the people who make, um. Pokemon Go, Niantic make a make a plugin that says, in these particular locations in the world, we have an authoritative version of what the world looks like, so we can place people exactly where they need to be. Right, the two devices don't need to agree with um, each other; they just need to agree with us. <laughs> um, so that's a big one. Is is sort of co-located AR and VR can is difficult, and it makes we are science fiction makes it really easy to do or seem really easy to do
0: now some of those uh, like holograms that um i don't know if you have watched star trek discovery but they have essentially the the hologram person sort of is just looks like they're just standing in front of the the character mm-hmm. and i have seen video of that As a as a like a teleconference system is that not something that is very expensive, but kind of exists.
1: Oh, so like Like
0: Cisco was doing that like a decade ago.
1: Standing in front of them like on a screen or like looks like they're almost present.
0: Like on a stage, but they look like they're in three dimensions.
1: Uh, Okay, Um, that is possible that is doable, yes. So it how how a, come
0: that's doable? Like how does that work if I that it looks like just a 3D person in the middle of the room or the middle of the stage?
1: It's um it's an interesting trick of the I don't know exactly the setup here, but there are a couple of mm. ways that if you have and it is a like an interesting trick of the eye. So there's one, have you ever gotten those um those they're like cards or what are they called they're called holograms yeah those hologram Mm -hmm. cards right you can fold them back and forth and it's because they have multiple different images that are reflected by prisms Mm -hmm. Um, that's one way that that you can do it you need a very particular um display um that's reflecting via prisms um different different angles and there's a company that makes that, that that makes like a little cube um that allows you to sort of walk around it and see different parts of it but we can't you can't project beyond that cube that's not mm. possible nor can you walk into the cube it's a piece of plastic <laughs> um so that's doable sometimes you can like you can trick the eye in that way i've seen other displays that do something that looks like looks like it's 3d but it's actually like a really quickly spinning display this one's i mean you figured out you figured out but like they they get a light and they they spin it around in 3d space really fast um, and they turn the light on and off in, in different places. And so you see, it looks like a three-dimensional object, but it's actually just a 2D plane spinning around really fast. Um, so that's another way you could get these these holograms on there as well. So that is, um, those sorts of things are possible, but just making, making something out of nothing is not something that we're doing. We always need some sort of medium um, to project into uh, I'm not on the, the forefront of this. I do remember seeing that there was some research and I either dreamt this or it's real that some people were learning how to like bounce light off of light. I think that was what I was understanding. Um, and that would get us closer to, to the sci-fi uh, sort of holograms that we're looking for. Um, I have no clue how you, how you would do that without destroying people's eyeballs if they walk into the wrong place. <laughs> Um, maybe but, that's just
0: an acceptable risk <laughs>
1: maybe <laughs> uh but if you if you can figure out how to do that of like um shoot into a medium or bounce light off of uh, another piece of a particle then you could begin to to create some of these things as well i'm sure there's some crazy folks at mit trying to figure that out
0: Almost certainly. Uh, yeah, I imagine in a field of research like yours, it can sometimes be hard, like, did I read that? Or did I dream it? Or was it <laughs> the latest episode? of?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm notoriously split on on the things that I do too. So I do a lot of things. <laughs> Say more about that. It's um, so like I, I, teach, I teach game development, right? I mm-hmm. teach augmented reality and mixed reality is one of the classes I teach. Um, I also teach web development. That's one of the core classes I teach right now. So I have, I have to, I have to keep up on a whole different set of technologies beyond um, 3D displays. So I'm, ugh, yeah, all those, all those web buzzwords. Um, I also teach um, multiplayer games, which is like networking is also a completely different thing than than virtual reality. And uh, in some ways, it's similar. My multiplayer games class is actually called um, Virtual Worlds, and people think it's a VR class all the time when it's actually not a virtual reality class, it's a uh, people online class. And I'm really interested in like um, people living online, that's a, a fascination of mine. And uh, I'm currently working on a PhD, and so that's what's really splitting my attention is my PhD is specifically online learning communities. Um, and that kind of that kind of stuff and so they have like i have to do all this other research that has nothing to do with ar and vr but does have to do with education and so um split is definitely i i, I make sure I, i'm not wasting my life i suppose <laughs> or maybe i'm wasting it on the long, wrong things it's always hard to tell sometimes
0: well but that's how the genius breakthroughs are made right when you're putting mm-hmm. things together that other people aren't putting together That's uh, how and and and, and the online learning stuff I did as I was researching, I, I picked up on some of that, and that's a, a personal interest of mine too. so that's part of why I was so excited to talk to you. And you've mm-hmm. done uh, research on communities of inquiry and online. So what is a community of inquiry and what is it about that that fascinates you?
1: Um, so a community of inquiry is we could uh, there's different there's different definitions. Sometimes I get it mixed up. So communities of practice, community inquiry, learning communities, they're all really similar to me. Um, but yeah, generally, if it was
0: essentially the same as a community of practice, except just ones with more people and more questions. <laughs> um, I think
1: that a community of practice, we might differentiate, well, let's talk about like, Generally, I think about them all in like the same sort of bucket list of, it's a bunch of people who are interested in the topic.
0: Yep, <laughs> um, yep, and they're, they're
1: all trying to get better at that topic or continue the practice of whatever that thing might be. Mm-hmm. Um, a community of inquiry in particular is probably closer to a scientific community of a bunch of people who are actually trying to deepen their knowledge about a subjects so and not just continue the practice, but rather um, develop the practice further or um, develop new knowledge, develop new insights. Uh, so that's one of the areas that I'm interested in. I still am interested in them. Um, probably my research leans a little bit closer to to um, learning communities in particular. Um, I have published on some stuff about learning uh, communities of practice. It's a it's a framework I use for analyzing um, people who are are learning online, specifically like live streaming themselves while while programming was was a publication I. I sort of use communities of practice as a foundational concept um but the, generally like they they have ways and mechanisms to ensure that like people who join know how to commu- like participate um and like some people might see it as like you got to put in your time or you got to be on the lower rung um but one thing that we do use with communities of practice is this concept of legitimate pr- participation you join the community you start doing like the, the grunt work, <laughs> like you fill buckets of water, um, whatever it might be. But it gives you access to the people who are actually good at what they're they're doing, who are the core members of that community, and you can observe them and sort of pick up what they're um, what they're saying and what they're doing, how they're they're engaging in their practice, and then you are able to engage in that work um, more as you move along. Um, it almost, online, yeah. it
0: almost sounds like a, a old fashioned apprenticeship sort Mm -hmm. of process
1: it's very like the the concept behind it is very apprenticeship-y of Mm -hmm. um you're here and you watch the the master do the work for a while and then you become um you become more capable if you're as you're given those tasks um in in the community of practice you have this concept of like you you start at the very edge and you work towards the core member of the community um you go from like knowing nothing to being someone who um if something comes up they know how to solve the problem they know like where all the resources are they know how to do the work um and they are like core members of like okay yeah like when we when we need to get something done we go to that person because they actually can do that work <laughs> um yeah so that's that's one way of approaching it there's other ways of thinking about it too so online we have other ways of um enabling access to to see um this stuff where people can sort of like, they don't really participate, but they lurk. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they just, they read forums and over time they, they pick up what the forum can do uh, or what the community values and what they want, because they're seeing all the discussions that are happening on that, that forum. Um, one of my favorite papers that, that talks about this is talking about um, a citizen science website used for like analyzing stars and galaxies. Um, and they they onboard people by having them um, do the work. So they do try to identify these things. And once they do an identification of this is a star, this is a comet or whatever, um, they're then shown the discussion by other people who are also doing that identification. And they can look and see, ah, oh, these are people who are experts in the field or have been doing this for a while. And they're like, they're getting into the nitty-gritty of no, 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 see this, this trail here, right? Like it's not, it's not this because it would have to conform to these. And that allows them to attune to this over time as well. I love, like, one of my favorite papers.
0: (laughs) And so there's a couple pieces of play here, right? One of them is, this is generative learning. You are not teaching someone necessarily, like, how to intubate. It's not something we know. It's how do you do a new thing nobody's ever done before, right? You're talking about Mm -hmm. programming video games. You're going to do something new, not do the same thing we already know how to do. So you're not going to have people who walk in knowing more than everybody else, because this is something everyone's trying to figure out. So you have to have an onboarding process mm-hmm. to get people all kind of aligned and, uh, it, and and understanding, I imagine, the norms and practices of the group as well, because mm-hmm. that's a different thing online than it is when someone can sort of grab you by the shirt collar and pull you aside if you <laughs> mess it up.
1: <laughs> yep, correct. Um. So yes, that's one of my, one of my research interests is I, I sort of look for communities of, of practice, um, my field is game development. So I look for where, where are the game developers and what are they doing that seems unique and maybe different than what we've seen in other, other fields. Uh, right. And they do do some, they do some weird stuff because they're, they're incredibly creative people. Mm-hmm. And so they, they get kind of creative in, in the ways that they, they learn and, um, and teach one another and, and learn from one another. Uh, the first one that that sort of like highlighted my interest years and years ago was uh, game developers who stream themselves making games on Twitch, which was people watch other people just like program for eight hours a day. <laughs> uh, it's like crazy, but it happens. Like people will just sit there and, and like co-work with other people who are making games. And there's a lot of learning that goes on on those streams.
0: Well, that um, reminds me of was it Dama Mitra who won like the Ted prize about seven or eight years ago, who he, his research started out where he put a kiosk with a computer in it in the middle of a um, indigenous community Mm, community mm -hmm. and, and just a mouse and a kiosk. And then he could see what was happening. And the kids in that community figured out how to find the microsoft (laughs) keyboard that's embedded and started figuring out and he was interested in learning too and he was trying to figure out if there were things that were too complicated to learn by watching and doing it yourself and um he his conclusion essentially was not really given enough time but one of the things that accelerates learning was he called the um the wisdom of the grandmother it was basically if somebody's doing a thing that's new you don't have to know how to do it better than them if you look over their shoulder and go oh that's really neat mm-hmm. what about that that accelerated the learning oh
1: interesting huh
0: even though the person involved wasn't an expert oh really cool stuff
1: that's super interesting actually huh
0: i can send you some links on it cuz it's it's uh, really neat
1: i'm not um, like that would make me rethink some of the things i've i've um i've written but like yeah i really like that I'm out of that, I'm out of the live streaming space. So like, it's interesting now to see people cite my work and, and taking it further. I know I've, I've seen some people um, taking that approach. They call it, um, it, it doesn't use that though. And I wish I had known about that one to, to suggest to them to incorporate it in there. They, they call it over the shoulder learning of like, I'm watching you do it, so I'm learning how to do it also.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I like this idea of like, just by having someone else there, who can make suggestions like more learning occurs from that interesting I'm going to be thinking about that one for a while <laughs> yay um,
0: um i suppose i should go back to talking about star trek and science fiction not just talk about learning the whole time um <laughs> so the um virtual reality games or augmented reality games showed up in star trek the next generation uh, in the episode the game and in the episode the game is essentially evil right the mm-hmm. game is um psych- psychotropically addictive and it takes over the whole crew and it was given to uh, i think Riker on um, uh by somebody who wanted to you know take over the federation well the game that they depict now exists it's created using the hololens and a biosensor mm-hmm. so how, have we seen, you know, games that can be used for nefarious purposes? How do we know that putting the ocul- Oculus on isn't going to lead to us, you know, being assimilated by the board? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, I think that's a I think that show was, was a really interesting one. Um, it's interesting because like the psychotropically addictive part of it, clearly the writers were thinking about how games can already be fairly addictive to people. Mm-hmm. And they're designed um, to
0: be right.
1: Mm-hmm. a so reward
0: is how you is how you hook somebody.
1: Yep. Um, so like, site, so like, games already sort of have that to an extent. Some people are more susceptible to it than others, um, and like, have to watch out for that and really be careful about it. There are games that are designed specifically to capitalize on that as well. There's a whole genre of games sort of built around that. They're called gotcha games. Um, sort of like gotcha. G A T C H A, um, which is uh, short for Gashapon, it's a Japanese sort of like um vending machine. Like you go and you put a quarter in, you turn the you turn the, the thing. We have this in America too, and like a toy will pop out. <laughs> so okay. you don't you don't you're not assured of getting the toy that you want, but if you keep putting money in there, your chance of getting the thing that you want is higher. Um, so it's like a, a, a short form of gambling in that way. Um, but like, and then there's this concept of um it's been big in, in the game development discord on Twitter recently too, because of some recent acquisitions. The concept of, um, they call it the, the addiction loop or something like that of like, how long do I let you play before I reel you back in? Or how, how long do I expect for you to play before I, I need to like give you another, another hit to make sure that you keep coming back? Um, and they can be tuned to different things. And we know as designers kind of how to do this. Like it's scary, but like the Skinner box works um on humans <laughs> and uh video games can be that so we can we can um say like hey after 20 minutes we'll make sure that you get rewards so that you keep playing um or we've tuned it so that, like through your gameplay we expect you by about 20 minutes to have finished this level and you'll keep playing um in that way so they they definitely can be addicting thankfully we don't have like a device that can hook into our, our brains and give us a little a little actual blast of of pleasure so at some point the the joy does wear off hopefully um but so they are they are addictive in that way and they already do people already do hook into those things um what's another one i'm thinking of in general those those like this is more gambling than gameplay specific but many games have these things called loot boxes of i play the game long enough i get this thing it gives me a random set of rewards. Um, and then I can keep playing to get these random sets of rewards that can be incredibly addicting as well for some people. Um, actually, some countries are beginning to make these, these loot boxes illegal because they are like close to gambling and they can be incredibly like very addicting to people, either um, spending money to, to buy those loot boxes or playing the game a, a really unhealthy amount to get to those rewards that they're looking for. Um, and many companies do this. Uh, Activision Blizzard, notorious for this. Um, uh, what's another one? Uh, oh, there's another one out there that I'm forgetting right now. Um, even even like um, Riot Games has a little bit of this going on, but many of them have these, these systems that are designed to sort of keep you in play, uh, make sure that you keep coming back, make sure that you keep thinking about their, their video game. Um, Specifically because that's how they make money. Uh, mobile games are especially big for this. The metric for mobile games is something called a, a daily active user. Um, how many users do you have per day that are using your, your thing? And then the second metric is how many of those users are going down your funnel, they call it, um, making the choices you want them to make until they hit the pain point where they will um spend for your game as well. They
0: will spend, yeah, until they until you've got them hooked enough, they'll give you money for the yeah and it's an interesting balance i think between where's the line where it is we're trying to keep people interested and where's the line where we're trying to addict them Mm
1: -hmm. um it's a really difficult balance and i many game companies i think straddle it just as much as possible (laughs) uh because they don't want people bouncing off to another equally well-designed game uh they have the data it's really easy to collect this data from players now like we know that our phones are sending a whole bunch of data back about us about our conversations it is um, our games are doing that too they're sending data uh, back about nearly every action that we take inside a game and then um the game designers can sort of see okay so if i include these choices for people at these levels at these intervals they tend to keep playing <laughs> uh they they tend to keep going and for many games that's what they want because we're moving to um many games are these things we call games as a service or live um live games are they called they're like not live action games i'm reading the the phrase for it now living games evergreen games um because it's hard to make a good game but if you can make a a game that like people keep coming back to year after year um you don't have to make another hit you just keep keep funding that one um many games do include systems to try to to try to dissuade dissuade that, uh, either by an energy system that makes sure that you can't keep playing even when you want to keep playing or uh, messaging to tell you to to go outside. Nintendo's notorious for this one. Many of their games tell you, like, you've been playing for two hours. It's time for you to to go do something else. (laughs) Um, So, yes, it is. Games can be harmful. Um, We know that they can be harmful. Many game designers um, realize that they can be harmful and the the scrupulous ones the ethical ones um keep that in mind when they're designing their games so that their their games are still fun and enjoyable and making sure they're hitting the numbers they need to hit so that people come back and give them money and like the game the developers can go home and like eat food all good things um but they also ensure that like people aren't aren't spending too much those are the scrupulous ones there are unscrupulous ones who who make sure that like this is going to hook them and it's going to hook them for um, a lot of playtime and a lot of money. Um, and it's, it's based off of like typical cognitive psychology stuff that we know exactly what, of what sorts of things feel rewarding to people and what, um, what order we need to give them to them.
0: And, you know, so there's definitely this dark side games, but there's also some really good information we can get about people from games. Haven't there been instances where games are used to um, predict how people will act in situations that we wouldn't want to put in the real world. And I'm thinking about the instance many years ago where there was a, the equivalent of a pandemic
1: mm-hmm. in an yep. online
0: game and they, you know, the CDC or somebody got involved to research, <laughs> like what yeah. are people doing? Um, and then, and we've recently had the opportunity to see how that matched up to behavior in real life.
1: Yeah. Um, Interestingly enough, the way that 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 online pandemic occurred uh, was a bunch of people griefing. Uh, They were, they were intentionally causing harm, which Mm -hmm. really does seem like it might match up to real life. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So that, that instance was the, the, the phage uh, in, in World of Warcraft, this was years ago. um, People were able to, they get this, this um, attribute uh, added to their character. And it's only, it only meant to happen inside of a boss battle, but they found a way to get out of the boss battle with that attached to them and go to like city centers and it, it sticks on you for a little while and then it kills you and it moves on to other people nearby and just sort of blossoms out from there. And it can kill people, like it can destroy entire towns really fast that way. Um, so a bunch of people figured out how to do that and they started griefing their, griefing their, their, um, their servers with that. It was later patched, and um, Blizzard like made sure that that couldn't happen anymore, which was good. Uh, but it did give some people some data to look at to analyze. Um, the fun thing was a bunch of researchers was like, "Oh, this is really interesting. <laughs> can you do this for us again, Blizzard?" And like, "No, <laughs> we are not going to specifically allow people to grief our entire server just so you can get some some um, health data." Uh, but yes, it is. We see that there. Um, games have all sorts of, of great outcomes. There, there was a game made by Indiana University years ago that was also an MMO that was meant to be a, a sort of educational space. It was um, based off the works of Shakespeare of all things. They're kind of silly folks down there. I think it's still running. I don't think it's really active, but you could log into it and like learn a whole bunch of stuff th- about Shakespeare by, by going through this MMO. Um, I find sort of modern games are interesting too. So we still have MMOs. We've got like that. World of Warcraft was a real classic sort of addictive space because um like the grind, like the grind, like it takes a lot of time to accomplish things in those games. And then uh like you have your friends there, and so you like it just it winds up being almost like another life that you're living. Uh so we still have MMOs Second like life? that. What's that? Second life is a big Second one. Life? <laughs> um I'm a big I'm a big Final Fantasy 14 player, so that's where I spend my my time. Um, second, like the, the new second life is actually a virtual reality. Um, it's, a what is it called? Why am I forgetting this right now? I'll remember it in a bit. Uh, but it's, it's all in VR. You put your, your, your thing on there and you, you go hang out with people as an avatar. Um, was I was thinking we're trying
0: to see that in science fiction too, right. That, that people have, I'm trying to think of exactly where I've seen it a little bit in upload um certainly the scalzy books uh head-on and lock-in and those have that that piece so we're starting to see that show up in in, or we've seen it show up in fiction for a long time but now we're Mm -hmm. starting to see it now you can actually go do it right
1: yeah um vr chat was what i was thinking of Mm -hmm. vr chat is a very popular one now um which i need to i need to play around with more i find it to be a really interesting space i just haven't explored it that much um, but for like good from video games, the the whole esports sector is super fascinating to me. Um, games like Overwatch and League of Legends and um, fortnite uh, that like they get people together they get them interacting they get them like learning how to to collaborate and communicate and, and accomplish objectives together uh, just like, known for their toxicity but also all these like really cool outcomes that come from them as well that uh i'm really excited by if there is a game genre that addicts me though it is definitely those games (laughs) i spent way too much time in overwatch i was actually playing a little bit before before this meeting started so (laughs) well Um, and
0: there's a lot of great learning that comes from games i mean at at their core level games are can be you know a little bit like flight simulators, or like we were talking about earlier, you know, teaching somebody to intubate a patient without actually threatening anybody's actual training. yeah.
1: <laughs> Super and cool. There,
0: and there is that whole uh, area of serious games where they've been designed to do that, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So training, you know, training
1: simulations. Yeah,
0: yeah. We get a lot of uh, information about the dark side of games, but there's definitely that power can be used for good and not necessarily for evil
1: i think there's there's probably more good than evil too (laughs) (laughs) the the evil comes only when when people want money but most of my friends who i knew in the the games industry are like actively working to make it a a better more positive place and I, i think they're having really good impact too
0: Yeah, that's fantastic so what are you working on now
1: um i'm working on game jams specifically and sort of hackathons in a, in a broader context. I'm interested in um, the factors that contribute to people working on the projects they start in hackathons and game jams um, and actually finishing those projects later on. So, cool. I, I made this thing and then I actually go on to actually release it as a full project or I, um, or I at least, like, and make sure it's not completely all right i put in more effort on it i might even not even release as a full project but it sees more effort after the end of the event because oftentimes during these hackathons and game jams like cool 48 hours i made a thing i never touch it again it just sits there in languages <clears throat> and for game jams sometimes that's fine actually um and sometimes it's not fine because the people who attended state directly i want to finish this game and i want to release it and they don't so something's going wrong in the game jam or the connection between the game jam and the community, the the short circuits that continuation process and I want to um, address that. Uh, for hackathons it becomes even bigger because many hackathons they have like the specific goal of hackathons for climate change and hackathons for um, the crappy roads in Indianapolis, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and those really need to see continued effort. Like your 48 hours is great. You get a prototype out there, but like that prototype means nothing if it doesn't get carried forward into the community. Uh, so I, I'm doing some work in there. I'm approaching it as a a learning problem, specifically of a, a problem that they're not attuning to long-term community resources they need to attune to. Um, And I'm approaching it from a a sociocultural learning standpoint, saying, cool, uh, you're definitely picking up skills, but you're not picking up the capability to participate in these communities after the end of the event. Um, In the the learning science field, we have this concept of um, transfer of learning, of I learned it in the classroom and then I I used it at Stake and Shake or wherever it might be. Um, (laughs) right. I learned how to, how to do circumferences and make hamburgers. Uh, maybe that's not the best learning outcome, but I like to think of weird places where you want to expect the learning to apply. So I'm also thinking of as a, as a problem of transfer of like, I started developing these skills and I couldn't see where to apply those skills in the future. So I just stopped applying them when the, the end of the event came.
0: It sounds like I I deal with that problem in my day job. And that's, I was going to ask you if you were looking at it from that learning transfer, because Mm -hmm. absolutely that's the I'm classic problem a, with with event-based training is now what happens when you get back to your job site yeah do you do so it i'm that using a out?
1: um a, a, an approach to transfer that. um this is actually where some of my my difficulty is and it's like a good difficulty i hope it goes somewhere but like the approach to sociocultural um i'm using an approach to transfer called expansive framing um mm-hmm. Which is like importing importing concepts from before and situating them as an author so that they're developing concepts for afterwards. But for 48 hours <laughs> during a game jam or hackathon to like hit all the notes needed for expansive framing is incredibly difficult. Um, I'm designing a tool right now that sort of tries to bridge between what needs to happen in a hackathon or game jam with um, what what you need to have expansive framing, and it's. It's nasty and it's kind of fun. Um, I got kind of annoyed with it. I just started writing a paper instead, but now I'm getting annoyed with the paper. So I, I might go back to that design work. But the the goal for that is I'm going to to design that, develop a, a bridging theory of like, okay, here's a way to apply expansive framing in hackathons. Um, and then I'm going to deploy it later on this year and actually test it in an online game jam. Um, specifically designing a tool so i'm also developing this this bot that will be used in an, an online game jam so hopefully um my committee didn't say no so <laughs> I'm, I'm a phd step. candidate like as long as i do all the things i said i did and write about it uh they they can't stop me anymore <laughs> they have to give me the degree <laughs> um it's just going to take some time but yes yeah, so that's what i'm that's what i'm working on currently and then I don't know where I'm going to go with that. Like, it's a my my plan is about two more years on that. So I have a faculty position right now. I'm a full time teacher. Uh, I might go poke around and see if I can get a professorship somewhere, but it seems like a lot of work. Um, and tenure seems like it's going to be less protected in the future than it has in, in the past. So maybe yeah, it's not worth my time is, anymore.
0: Academia is definitely a changing world. Yeah. Um, so, if people want to connect and learn more about what you're doing, where can they find you online?
1: Um, major place where I, I make noise and embarrass myself is on Twitter. Um, um, on Twitter, my username is Meandering Leaf, like Wandering Leaf. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, kind of hard to spell, but that's my username. Uh, from there, you can probably find the the rest of my uh, the rest of my my social accounts. I'm a very Googleable name. There's not a lot of Travis Fawzes in the world. Um, and if you Google my name, I think like two other Travis Fawzes pops up, one of which has a very emo profile pic on uh, Google image search, which cracks me up every time. But if you Google my name, Travis um, F-A-A-S, you will find uh, my Twitter, my Google Scholar page, my my IUPUI, um, uh Scholar page, whatever that is, uh, faculty page, all sorts of other weird random things. My my amazon author profile page um
0: (laughs) yeah yeah
1: so you can find all those things because there's not a lot of travis fauzes in the world and i'm i'm excessively online
0: yes you're happy to talk to easy to find online
1: yeah happy to talk to anyone too so
0: great well thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today
1: yeah i hope it was enjoyable
0: (laughs) i enjoyed the heck out of it hopefully listeners will too (laughs) great Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.